And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we're talking about Honey Girl by Morgan Rogers, a book that Harmony and I both really love. Are you excited, Harmony? I am excited. So as you know, Maggie, this was my book for all of 2021, essentially, and I just finished it tonight because I I didn't want to finish it because it made me sad to be done with it. So I just finished it tonight on my commute home, and I was sitting in the subway station actually crying. And that's not an exaggeration for the podcast. So I believe that. I believe that. So for those of you who don't know, Harmony's really not joking when she says that she spent all of 2021 reading this book. It was just one of those things that went along with her. Harmony came to my house in July and gosh, you were maybe like halfway through it. Did I have this book? Yeah, you had Honey Girl with you. No, I was, I had to be way more than halfway through. I don't know, but that's interesting. And she was like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm taking my time with this one. So now that you've, now that you've made it to the end one year later, did the ending live up for you? I mean, it made you cry. What were you, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Sad that it was over. (laughs) I really loved this book. It was really such a balm on my soul. And has Morgan Rogers written anything since in this year that I've taken to read her first book? We should find I out. Actually, no, because I know that this was her <laughs> debut. Yeah, we should find out. I feel like though what you just said about it being a bomb to the soul is so indicative. In the past couple of episodes, we've teased some of our thoughts and feelings about Honey Girl a little bit, I think, because as you all know, we're doing kind of a month of romance reads. And I feel like this this book is a romance, but I, I would say it's really more just a literary contemporary fiction book that has a really heavy romance element to it. So it's a little bit different than some of the other novels we're talking about. And for me, I think it was just so therapeutic to read a book about somebody in their 20s trying to figure out what direction they're going in their lives, fighting up against all of the evils of capitalism and all of the evils of racism as well and finding love and finding herself and finding her path anyways and also having her go to therapy and talk so frankly and openly about mental health and seeing that process in such a positive way all of this together just soothed the ache in my sad little gen z millennial soul (laughs) your cusper soul Yeah, why don't we give a quick summary of this book? Sure. I can go ahead, I guess, because it took me a year to read it. We open with this beautiful prologue that's written in second person. And you are in Las Vegas, and there's champagne bubbles and a beautiful girl. And it might say something about sea salt. Let me just take a quick peek here. I don't see anything about sea salt yet. I guess it's supposed to be maybe that places us a little bit too much. 
But sea salt is an important theme because sea salt is associated with our main love interest. And that opens up on chapter one. Our main character wakes up and her name is Grace. And then she smells sea salt. And it's because she got married in Las Vegas while she was hanging out with her friends, excited that she finally got her PhD. And this book just kind of follows her in the aftermath of having finally gotten her PhD, but now not knowing what she wants to do with her life and having a mental breakdown. You know, she the first part is marrying a girl in Vegas, but that turns out to not be a horrible thing for her. But the rest of this book is just her dealing with what to do now that her life isn't planned out for her. And she meets the girl in Vegas and it's super cute. But she meets her in New York City, and the girl has this podcast that she talks about monsters with, and she talks about lonely creatures in the night. And our main character has mommy and daddy issues, and it's sad. And the ending is all about love. That's my summary. Maggie, do you want to add anything? (laughs) No, I mean, honestly, that's genuinely what the book is about, is that it's about grace struggling without her life being structured anymore but then also still having the same level of expectation put upon her especially by her father who expects her to be really great and has largely been pushing her and propelling her through certain aspects of her career and it's part of the reason that she's got such a strange relationship with him and then also it's about the fine line that I think a lot of us walk right now between am I burned out or am I dealing with real, not that burnout isn't real, but like intense mental illness issues. What is the line between all of that? How am I supposed to parse all of that? How do I take care of myself in this world that is not set up to take care of me? And then it's, and it is about love. It's so much about love. Grace spends the summer with Yuki in New York city. They get to know each other. They try and figure out if they should stay married, if they should be in a relationship And then Grace ultimately makes the choice to go stay with her mom for a while. She meets a couple therapists she really works on and centers herself. And once she's able to do that work, and it's work, and the novel talks about it being work, that's really when she's able to then come back and make a decision that feels like it's right for her and right for this relationship that she's decided she's going to try. Yeah, I was looking through this novel earlier today to try and find good quotes for it. And she's in Florida for the entire last third. It's a Mm -hmm. long time in which she is in Florida dealing with herself and her mental health, which is amazing. This book, for me, having finished it today, because for those that don't know, I'm in grad school and grad school is a little scary and I feel kind of like I'm on the precipice of something again. And the the weight of the future is really honing or, or bearing down on all of my anxieties. But this book really spoke to me as I read it today because... Grace loves her field. She she got a PhD in astronomy and she loves doing astronomy genuinely. And she wants to be the best of something. She's a overachiever. It's not just, I don't think, her father's pressure to be the best at wherever she does. But part of her discovery throughout this book is that the best for her looks different than what other people's expectations of her are. And that Being the best at something like astronomy doesn't leave her enough time to attend to and take care of and be there with and for the people that she loves. That was a lot for me coming upon graduation and contemplating a someday PhD because, gosh, that seems stressful. 
It's so true. I mean, I think Harmony and I have made no secret that we're both, you know, constantly flirting with academia in some way. If you've been listening for a long time, you'll know that I graduated with my master's degree a couple years ago, and uh, I'm waiting to hear if I'm going to be accepted to get my PhD right now. And it's funny because for a book that's taking place after grad school, it spoke so much to all of the anxieties I constantly deal with with grad school. And I think for me, the theme of my best is going to look different, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a need chasing the most prestigious, the most intense, if that's not going to be good for me, was really powerful to read. Because I think that I personally am, am kind of grappling with that often. And it took me a long time. This is going to sound pretentious as fuck, but it's true. It took me a long time to let go of my Ivy League dreams. I really thought I was going to do that for my PhD. And I probably could have if I wanted to, but for a million different reasons, that's just not the way that life's worked out. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be the, the highest echelon, the best of the best for whatever reason, whatever that even means, honestly, just what we're all doing and doing for our best that allows us ways to feel fulfilled in the things that we love to do and also take care of ourselves and the people we love. That's the message. That's the point. And I think that that's how you got to get through capitalism as it is right now, as much as possible. I have a quote, if I may, that I think really sums up my feelings about work and stress, and capitalism. And it's towards the beginning of the book. And it it takes place towards the beginning. Grace is kind of giving us some context for her life before she came to this point. She currently, in, in our current setting, lives with two roommates. One is named Zimna. Is that sound right? Zamina? Zamina. Zamina? Even though I it's with so. an X? Yeah. Okay, Zamina and I think then. So. Okay. Yeah, one is named Zamina. She meets her first, and then she eventually meets Agnes, who Zamina picks up at the hospital. Zamina, it works at a hospital, which is how her and Grace meet. But initially, it's just Zamina and Grace. They think about dating, but then decide not to because Grace just can't devote time to it, but they live together. And in this scene, Zamina is talking about meeting Agnes and having this pull towards her, and wanting to bring her into her life with, into Grace and Zamina's life, even though I don't think that they're together, but there's definitely hints of polyamory, I think, a little bit going on. Okay, so it's on page 45. They don't talk about it. It is buried in the hollow of Grace's ribs, in the back corners of her mind, the dark, anxious pit of her stomach. Zamina doesn't ask why Grace claws at her skin, scratching until she is settled by the sting. Grace wonders, during school and work and the future influx looming ahead, how long she can withstand the sting before it just stops. How long can she burn before there's nothing left? How long a thing can be buried before it combusts? And I feel like that, especially placed at the beginning of the book, is a really great way of describing this sort of anxiety that we all have to succeed within a capitalist framework and a capitalist society. I think everyone today is anxious about something, right? It's 2022. We're still in a pandemic. Lots of countries, lots of states are pretending that we're not, even though hospital rates are still high. 
And we're just moving forward with this collective (laughs) trauma and anxiety and still going on. A lot of us have to go back to work. Some people are allowed to stay remote, but regardless, you're, you're carrying something right now. And it's sitting there at the back because the world is hard and tough and it's hard for us to talk about in our day-to-day interactions because if we talk about it, we might not be able to keep going. I don't know, Maggie, what does that passage bring up for you? A couple of different things. The first that I do think that we need to say right at the get-go, though, after that passage, is that this book does deal with, as a content warning, self-harm on the page, as well as suicidal ideation and discussion of a previous suicide attempt. So if those are triggers for you, be warned. I don't know how much we're going to talk about it in the episode specifically, but it's possible that it will come up again and definitely be warned before reading the book. Having said that, though, I think that that is a really poignant and powerful passage. And to me, it also reminds me so much about the idea that there's just this physical weight that Grace is carrying with her all the time that she's trying to figure out how to navigate physically on her body to me was so poignant. I think that oftentimes anxiety feels physical, right? And it feels like something that you are navigating in your body, even though other people might not be able to see it unless you're showcasing or experiencing very certain types of symptoms in that moment. And I think as well, the idea that you're carrying it on your back specifically is important versus your front or in your arms. To me, for whatever reason, that imagery is really important because I think oftentimes we think of the things that we carry on our backs as, I mean, literally things that we're shouldering. You might not always be able to physically reach certain areas of your back to shrug it off, even if you want to. It's not something that you can just drop like it would be if you were carrying it physically on your front or in your arms. I don't know if it specifically mentions her back, but it does talk about carrying. You are right about that. And it also talks about the pit in her stomach. Oh, I thought it did because she was talking about reaching around. I'm sorry. I'm just rereading it. Yeah. Oh, no. You're right. She Something she will never get to reach. Yeah. But it does talk a lot about, too, about her stomach, which is another thing. Whenever we are anxious, whenever I get anxious, I feel the pit in my stomach, right? That's something we hear about all the time within literature. And, you know, you might want to throw it up. But it's this idea of having something deep within you buried and toxic. Mm -hmm. The other thing, honestly, that that brings up for me is that I saw a review, and I'm not going to put this review around blast right now, but I read a review right before this as I was prepping for this episode that said the writing in this novel was basic and not lyrical, and I just couldn't disagree more. I think the writing in this book is so beautiful and so poignant, and the imagery is so strong. There's such a, I think, a visceral physical feeling in this book through the writing that's portrayed not just through Grace's experiences dealing with anxiety and dealing with self-harm, which are both things that she's kind of navigating throughout this. But also, it's funny that you bring up the pit in the stomach because the pit in the stomach is also so related to hunger. And there's so much visceral food imagery in this book. Yuki calls Grace honey girl because she has her mother's blonde hair and it kind of comes off on her as honey. And Yuki is so tied to sea salt and her mother runs an orange farm. And in Florida, everything is so viscerally tied to citrus. And then we have the tea shop too. Yeah, and we've got the tea shop too. It's a very physically grounded book that I think talks a lot about what we ingest in the world that's both positive and negative and where all of that lives in ourselves. So the pit in the stomach here, 
I think you're right. That's an image we're all so familiar with. And it's a feeling most of us can probably relate with. But I feel like Rogers does a really good job of taking that image and that feeling as far as it can go in terms of thinking of how to stretch that metaphor and relate stomach and feeling and physical sensation like that to so many different aspects of life. I think it's important too that you bring up that reviewer which is just wrong that reviewer is I don't know smoking something but the fact that this is a really beautiful and beautifully written book because it is such a solve on the soul as we we've said before and it is so beautifully written but it's also a really incredibly sad book it's so joyful and so beautiful and so nice to read but it's the whole premise is this girl as we pointed out in the summary kind of having a mental breakdown and every character in this book struggles with that same sort of emptiness or stress or anxiety there is something that each of these characters are holding that is dark and sad yeah and also finding their ways to fight with that and cope with that in a way that I really appreciate One of my favorite, favorite, favorite aspects of this book is Yuki's radio show where she talks about mythology and she talks about lonely creatures. And she takes such a beautiful and romanticized lens at just thinking about the idea that you're not alone. And also, even if the world essentially tells you you're a monster, or if you feel like you're one of the monsters or one of these lonely creatures in the night, here I am to hold your hand. And I love that because it's such a... It's the way that Grace really gets to know Yuki, you know, she starts listening to the radio show. And that's really how this, the building of this actual relationship happens as she's deciding if she's going to go to New York to actually meet her. And it's this idea that they're connected. And, you know, by the end of it, there's so much where Grace feels like Yuki's speaking just to her and only to her. And eventually Yuki is speaking just to her and only to her. But it's so much a book about learning how to cope, about saying the world is kind of terrible and you can still find joy in it. And I feel like for me, that's what really makes this often feel like more of a contemporary novel, because even though the romance is such a huge portion of it, it is really a book about the terrors of trying to be in your 20s in the 21st century right now and how you can do your best to heal through that and protect yourself through that, even when you feel like a lonely creature. Oh my God, this book is all about solidarity. (laughs) Sorry. No, it really is. No, you're so right though. It really is. It's all about community building. So I wanted to talk a little bit about lonely creatures. I'm wondering if I, if it's too soon to read another quote, because I actually have one. Do you want to do that first to ground the discussion or should we just get into lonely creatures and read the quote after? Let's read the quote to ground the discussion. So it is on page 161. And this is after Yuki and Grace and all of Yuki's friends, because Yuki also has a a found family, go upstate to Lake Champlain to try and find the essentially Loch Ness monster of Lake Champlain. I think that its name is Champy, but I don't know. I'm a bad Vermonter. So again, it's on page 161. Grace is trying to figure out why Yuki does this, why she even monster hunts at all. I think believing in monsters is not what this show is about. It's not what I think about when I come here to talk to you all. What I think about is what makes me any different from this terrible thing? What makes me the same? 
At the end of the night, I do not find myself asking if I truly believe in the sea monster that lies waiting in the body of a lake. At the end of the night, when I pack up and shut off the lights, I think, is that me? Am I that monster? In what ways am I the terrible, frightening thing? Do you want to give a try to how that might relate to lonely creatures? Well, I feel like it's like, I think almost it really, oh my gosh, I can't fucking speak. It really relates, I think, to the discussion we were just having about how this novel is equally sad and joyful because it's constantly grappling with the terrible things in life, but also finding you a way out. To me, so much of that also takes that to a micro level and understanding not to be the meme, but in some cases you are going to be the villain, right? And some, in some cases you are going to be the monster. And thinking about who, and thinking about and parsing out the idea that so many times when we other other people, you know, mythologies create monsters for no reason, we're really just showcasing our fear of what's different from ourselves. And I think that what Yuki does so beautifully is saying. You know, even when you do dive into these deep, dark parts of you, you don't necessarily have to be afraid of what you find there, even if it's different than what you think it should be or expect it to be. And it's a really beautiful moment and tool of self-reflection that I think also just speaks to why humans are so drawn to stories in general. I feel like people love stories and love myths and continue to love stories and myths that are hundreds and even thousands of years old because they help us explain the world. But more importantly, they also help us explain ourselves and the unknowable things that happen in our own minds. I think that is exactly correct, Maggie. And claps. Yeah. And what's even more is that, and you kind of alluded at this, Nellie is not Nellie. Sorry. Yes, Nellie. That's her name. My bad. I had a moment. Kevin cut all of that out. (laughs) Yuki. Yuki. Yuki is her name. (laughs) Yuki is looking for... Okay, give me a second. Okay, Kevin, get all of that out. Yuki is specifically looking for these monsters. She's looking for that lonely part of you. She's looking for the monster within you, the part that you want to hide from the rest of the world and asking you to face it, which is what our main character, Grace, is doing throughout this book. She's finally coming to terms with these parts of herself that she didn't want to face for years and didn't have to while she was working the grind. And I also think we see this over and over again when Yuki is related to having a siren song. And she opens up each and every part of her show with Hello, Lonely Creatures. So she's right then inviting everyone to come and and bear their souls or letting them know that those parts of themselves, this is a safe space to, to have it. And I think that's part of what draws grace in. Because she has all of this that she hasn't been able to face even for herself yet. And Yuki's immediately saying, come find me. Like, I want to know this part of you. It takes Grace a while to come to terms with showing Yuki that part. When we were talking about solidarity, I think that's also important. Because Yuki, Yuki wanting to connect with other people in that way. Wanting to showcase that's a way of like breaking down these other systems and i think this book this book being all about connection right what connects us is all of these lonely things that we carry is the fact that we're all struggling together it really sounds like collective action to me (laughs) yes we are all struggling let's 
form together and do something about it. But this book is telling us the love. That's what we have to do about it, mm-hmm. is to let go of our expectations and just choose loving. You know, it's interesting too, because what I was going to say is that it's also, it's not just about understanding that within yourselves, but it's also about understanding it within the people that you love. Grace has a deeply, deeply overly romanticized view of Yuki for most of the novel. And it's partially because she gets to know her at first through this medium, which is authentic, but of course, also equally performative, right? She's curating this radio show. She's picking her words very carefully And part of what Grace pushes up against is when she starts to see parts of Yuki that she doesn't understand. Like when she starts to get into Yuki's deeper, darker parts and is trying to parse through all of that. And that's when some conflict happens between the two of them. So it's also about saying and understanding. You have to be able to accept these things in yourself, but you have to be able to equally accept, extend that accepting hand to others in your life too. And understanding that nobody's perfect and yet everybody needs to be eventually brought into that fold. No, I agree. And we see that at the end of the book when Grace finally confronts both of her parents when she talks to her mom because if we haven't if you haven't read this book, her mom leaves eventually when Grace is a teen because she needs to go find herself and Grace feels really sad about that and has to talk through those feelings with her mom and then eventually she ends up confronting her dad who is the way he is because he was in the military in some capacity and also like was a black man, was a doctor in the military, trying to make it, trying to give his future offspring a better chance at the world than he had. So she learns to extend grace to both of those people, which is important. Oh, grace extends grace. That's funny. That point, I think, pivots to something else I want to talk about in this book, too, which is family relationships, because family and its multitude of meanings is so much at the center of this novel and what it means to love. And I think that this book does a really good job of portraying Grace's relationships with her parents, which are really strained and are really difficult, but still are full of love. And especially when Grace is able to start dealing with some of her own mental illness and then start extending grace to others, she's able to see the ways in which her parents' parenting styles might not have worked for her, but why some of that stuff was happening, and they're able to, as adults, start to come to greater understandings with each other. But also, this book does found family in a way that's really beautiful, and also, for me, and what I've read at least, is different than other found family stories. I feel like a lot of found family stories are you have a group of characters who are sort of already in in kind of a found family situation, And then you have your main character or one of your main characters who's sort of the odd duck in their own life who gets sort of folded into the found family. I don't want to compare novels too much, but One Last Stop by Casey McQuiston, which we just talked about, is kind of like this, where August, you know, settles herself into this larger kind of found family situation in New York City. But instead, this is about the meeting and combining in many ways of two found families, because Grace has her set of friends who have been there with for her through thick and thin who they've all gone through terrible things together and you have that long established friendship which I think is really lovely to see but then equally Yuki has that as well in New York City and Yuki has her roommates and what we see in this novel is the blending and marriage of those found family situations in some cases or like the start of that and how 
I don't know. I, I guess I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I wanted to talk about it because it is different than other found family situations that we've read together on the podcast. And I really liked the different dynamic here. I like it too. It's a lot more realistic, at least to how, you know, my found, found families work in that we, we do get to see how some of these found families form, at least Grace's families. And what happens is that somebody like Zamina coming home with Agnes, right? They've already formed some sort of love. And then Agnes and, and Grace learn to love each other too, because they both love Zamina. And then they, they learn to love each other for just each other. And that's kind of how a lot of these mm-hmm. relationships work. That's how it works when Mira and Zamina meet. Mira really loves Zamina and eventually she and Agnes and Zamina all form a a, a bond as well. But it, it starts through their shared love of Grace. And that's when Grace goes and meets Yuki's found family. They also form a shared bond, but it's from their shared love of Yuki. And I think that that, I, I like that people are able to connect through their their shared their shared connections being just this person that they love. I know that when I'm connecting with other friends or friends of friends, that that is always the starting point for me. And then from there, we can go on and build something beautiful. When we're talking about solidarity, that just that feels a lot more potent to me, right? Because we're, we're recognizing that even if we don't think we have anything in common, we do because we both care about somebody, right? It feels very collectivist in a way to me. Yeah, I think so. And I think it also just goes to show that some of the most beautiful, I I mean, I think that the whole message of this book, or at least part of it is that some of the most beautiful moments in life are born out of love. And you need to be able to prioritize fostering and continuing to nurture love in your life as you grow. Because you're right, it is so there's something really exciting about meeting your friend's friends for the first time, right? And being like, this person loves my friend the way I love my friend. It's different because their relationship is different, but it's born out of such a place of just cherishing this one person. You have such a strong basis for getting along. And it's true with subject matter too sometimes, right? We both love books in the same way. Like, let's talk, let's connect, let's do all of this stuff. And I feel like the book just does a really great job of showcasing that. And I think something I like too about this is that you see found family is often a dynamic that happens kind of fast. And you often in books see the beginning of those relationships and the testing of those relationships, but you don't always see those relationships really far down the line. And in this book, you get both because you see Grace starting to get into Yuki's found family and navigating that. But Grace's found families have been around for years and years and years. So you see how that bond has been tested and shaped and reforged and reformed over those years to create something that's been really long lasting. And I feel like you can say with certainty as a family, because it's been around for so long, which isn't to say that new relationships, you can't have that certainty, you totally can. I just like being able to see both simultaneously in one piece of fiction. Yeah, it's beautiful. You also earlier talked a little bit about this romanticizing that Grace has. And that was something that I picked up on too. But I had a slightly different take initially, which was this idea that they both found each other magic, right? There's a story that Grace's mom has told her that the son favored her. 
And Yuki really clings on to that. And she calls her her sun-kissed girl and sun-favored girl and, you know, her honey girl. And Grace really links on to this siren imagery for Yuki. And even in the end, they both still have that for each other, even though now they've seen each other's flaws and know that they're not actually magic. But I think that's also kind of beautiful is this idea that I mean, we see it a little bit with the the love for Zamina, and we also see it for Agnes, too, who's often described as kind of a wild creature. Seeing somebody so well or, or loving them so much that you see their beauty just at the forefront, right? You see all these beautiful things about them. But as you were talking about this romanticizing, it also made me think that Grace does this to all the people in her life, in a way. She compares her father to a god quite a bit. And it's hard for her to recognize that he is also vulnerable. And that's part of why she has trouble extending grace to him initially and confronting some of her feelings from what he has caused her in terms of all of this pressure that he's built. But it's also something that she has to confront with Raj, who is Mira's older brother and also a part of Grace's found family. She's always seen him as just being the bigger brother, being the person that's there for her. And it really hits her hard when she finds out that he's also struggling with some of the same stuff that she is, that he's struggling to find his place in the world and the weight of family expectations. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think it would be really easy to say that Yuki is the romanticizer of the two of them. And I mean, on the surface, that's true, right? Yuki's an Aquarius. She's this very floaty, romantic, siren-esque character. But I think that underneath all of that, Yuki really sees to the truth of the world and sees a lot about people really quickly, accurately. And I think that Grace is a very, for the most part, practical, straightforward work-centered person who on the surface you probably wouldn't see as a romantic character necessarily in that same sense but she really archetypes all the people in her life and I think occasionally because of that puts them in a box and I feel like that's a very romantic thing in and of itself because often it's a box there's almost like the hero and the villain box right as you were talking about with her father where she has to learn to dig under this this surface character that she's built for him and that she's experienced to see other things and to me that just feels so in line with romanticism at large i understand what you're saying when we romanticize people we're not always able to see see their lonely creatures if you will right we're not able to see the burdens that they yeah. carry or the realer aspects. Yes, thank you for translating. No, that's okay. You're welcome. This book does a good job of doing both, right? Of honoring the romantic and not shaming it, because we do have those magical elements. And this book is a romantic book, but also recognizing that you can have that beauty and that love, that that romance, while also recognizing these grittier, realer aspects. And a part of real love is recognizing those gritty aspects and then choosing to accept them and choosing to still see someone as beautiful. Speaking of real love, may I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you think of their choice to stay married at the end? Oh, I liked it. (laughs) I know know that it's insta-love. And I know that you were probably going to have maybe issues with it. But yeah, I I like that they chose to stay married, even though, I mean, I was reading it and I was like, well, they don't really know each other very well. But 
I don't know. I like that they're just sticking with it. They're like, you know what? We're going to see what works for us. I still really like you. You are going to be my person. And I think just because somebody says that, that doesn't mean that they have to be each other's people for forever. But they did get married. So yeah, they're giving it a shot. I think that's kind of beautiful. I do too. Honestly, I really wasn't mad about it. I kind of thought for a while that the book was going to go in a direction where maybe they were going to try and break up and then, you know, decide to get back together. I mean, honestly, if we're thinking logistically about it, if you want to be with somebody and you're already married, getting divorced to maybe then get remarried later, that's a lot. That's a lot. I think, well, I think too, like it does, I think that's something that I love so much about the married in Vegas trope, which I read a interview with Morgan Rogers before we started recording. And she was saying how she loves fandom. She loves fanfic. This whole book started for her because she loves the we get drunk and get married in Vegas trope, right? (laughs) But I think that what this novel questions in such a beautiful way was it, in so many ways, it pushes up against the idea that marriage is the sanctity of marriage or whatever. At the end of the day, they're in a relationship plus some extra legal loopholes and some extra legal benefits. And I mean, in real life, if one of my friends were to do this, I probably wouldn't be, you know, I, I might be <laughs> counseling a little bit differently because it also gives your spouse powers over your life and stuff like power of attorney that aren't necessarily things that you would want a stranger to have over you probably. But I love that conversation that it has. And I love the idea that marriage doesn't necessarily have to just be one thing. And that for them right now, continuing to stay legally married is working for them, even while they're working through their relationship. And if they decide to stay together forever, that's coolio. And if they decide not to, then eventually maybe they will get divorced. But that the weight of that legal status and just that word essentially isn't necessarily holding them back from each other. And I really liked that. I like that too. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> All right. I have one last quote about love. Do you, do you, are you ready for it? Sure. Okay. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to open it up. It's towards the very I end. I feel like you're just reading me a, a beautiful love letter at this point. I read this book and I'm thinking about how we have to record on the subway. And I thought about texting you. I love you, Maggie. I see you. Hello, lonely creature or something like that. <laughs> but I thought it might this, be too that happy. Is very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> this is on page 287. Oh, good. This is on page 287. We're at Grace's mom's wedding to a guy that Grace has decided she kind of likes for her mom. Took a while, but she's there now. And Grace actually ends up marrying her mom and this guy. All right, it's 287. People are dancing and laughing and the room fills with love. There is so much love spilling out from this tent. Grace feels it on both sides of her, between her two closest friends who press close and do not let her go. There is a small, hollow ache somewhere deep inside her, but she is learning that she is made up of many small, hollow aches. She will continue the process of exploring them one by one. So it's love, but also sadness. It's so beautiful. (laughs) It is No, but I think it's love, but it's also sadness. But it's also self-acceptance, right? This is who I am. This is what I'm dealing with right now. And those and these hollow aches inside me don't necessarily have to hold me back from loving myself or others or life. Yeah. 
it's okay to be sad and it's okay that the world is tough and that's just that's just the way it kind of is and I think the first step to addressing that the first step to making ourselves less sad or making the world less tough is being able to face it and be like hey this is okay it's okay that I have feelings it's okay that I'm vulnerable it's okay that I have these small hollow aches this is such a beautiful book it's gorgeous I think I might be out of intelligent things to say, though, tonight. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) That's okay. So I think that's what we'll leave you all with, listeners. But before we do, Miss Maggie, what are you reading? I'm reading The Mirror Season by Anna Marie Micklemore, which is, I think, their newest novel. Very good so far. And I'm rereading for the billionth and first time. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it, but I'm rereading Discovery of Witches by Death for Heart Pants. It's just to give everyone. <laughs> I realized last week when I said that I never reread a romance book that I was lying through my fucking teeth because I think that this is the fifth time that I've read this series. Uh, I'm having a rough go right now. I just, I need the comfort of knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> I understand. I understand that. Okay, so I am still reading You Are Here, which is a book that I think I advertised last go around. And I'm also reading I'm also reading two audiobooks right now. The first is called Star Daughter. It's a YA novel about a girl who is the daughter of a star. It's by I'm sorry if I pronounced this wrong. It's by Shavita Thakrar. And the second book that I'm reading, so that's my when I'm at work and no one's in the library and I have to do boring work, but I need something to engage me book. And then I have a sleep book and that is called Apricot Jam, which would have been perfect for our holiday reads because it's an audiobook and it's sapphic and it takes place during the holiday season. So why are you making those faces, Maggie? I didn't like Star Daughter. So I'm just curious to hear what you have to say about it when you're done. It's hard for me to tell because I am also at high stress levels and sometimes that affects my reading enjoyment. But so far I've liked it. I'm like towards the middle, I think. And now it's it's harder for me to get into. But I think that might just be where my head is at. I can't do any sort of media for any point of time because my head just isn't in a good space for media. I feel that. What are we doing next week? Next week, we're doing another fun episode, right? Oh, no. No, we're yeah, not. next week, we're doing another fun episode. Yes, we are. are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are. Okay. I'm looking at, I'm looking <laughs> at it right now. But this is, the end of our, this is the end of our foray into romance for right now. I'm sure we're going to be reading more romance books on the podcast in the future. We like them now. Yeah, because we like them now. We're going straight back into nonfiction because Harmony loves to torture me and we're reading a <laughs> woman of anarchism essay. Yes, so we, we haven't chosen it yet, but I've, I'm going to choose an essay from a woman that has to be anarchist. It might be Lucy Parson, although I don't think she really has essays, but she does have speeches that I can try and find. Or it might be Emma Goldman. We will see. Or it might be somebody else altogether. It's a mystery for everybody, my friends. Yeah. <laughs> Including us. Goodbye. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. 
Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, rebelgirlsbook.club, and clicking Read Along with the Show. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.